Welcome to the Turnaround Mindset Podcast with your hosts, behavioural economist and psychologist Phil Slade and successful business leader and accountant Adam Smith. Each week, our hosts will unpack the tough and intimate questions we all face as professionals, offering no-nonsense business advice to those bold enough to think and act differently. Now, here are your hosts, Phil and Adam. Hello, Turnaround Mindsetters. My name's Phil Slade and I'm joined by Adam Smith. Today, we're having a conversation with someone who has genuinely embodied what it means to have a turnaround mindset approach to life. Adam, who are we talking to today? So, Dave started his career as an Irishman serving in the British Royal Air Force. He then made the pivot into algorithmic trading with UBS. From there, he then grew to a larger team moving across to Credit Suisse before becoming head of algorithmic trading and quantitative strategies with Deutsche Bank. Dave is the founder and CEO of Optimal Agriculture. It's an incredible story about how we are building sustainable greenhouses outside of every major city here on earth. I can't wait to tell you all about it, listeners. You're going to love this one. Yeah, if you've got any interest in the resilience that it takes to build successful careers and to pivot and move where opportunity lies, then we hope that you enjoy this conversation with Dave Hunter as much as we did. Here is Dave Hunter. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. You know, I always thought I'd be one of those people that has had a very kind of linear career trajectory and, you know, just kind of climb the ranks and so on. And, um... And I, it turns out I've had probably the most kind of varied career out of, out of all my my friendship group, um, which definitely wasn't how I planned it out. At quite a young age, I got interested into in in, in into the Air Force and in, into flying, and that was because I joined uh, Air Cadets. I don't know if if you have Air Cadets in Australia, but um, if, if they do, yeah, I don't think Adam and I were top of the list for their recruitment <laughs> services. So they may, but you know, we're not quite sure. Sort of a youth group uh, run by volunteers, which was you know affiliated with the Royal Air Force, and you sort of learn you know some stuff about flying and various other things. Um, that's how I got interested in in flying, and uh, then um, I was sponsored. I applied for a sponsorship. Um, at, at school in the last couple of years in, in secondary school I was sponsored by the Air Force you had a, you got a small amount of money you did a bit of flying on the side and then when I went to university I was fully sponsored by the Air Force so I did all my selection so Air Force selection before I went to university and then I had a guaranteed job as a pilot after and I did part one of my flying training um, alongside my studies so I would be studying you know, I was supposed to be studying during, during the week. And then on the weekends and in the holidays, I'd go and be taught how to fly. And, and that was great. But what happened was the, clo- the closer, basically I, I got to graduation, the closer I got to the Air Force proper, you know, the more time I spent um, on RAF bases and with people who joined, um, the more I realized it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Um, and, you know, as much as I love flying, um, the, the reality of it is there's a lot of kind of a day-to-day job involves a lot of kind of just waiting around really on, on air force bases and, and not doing a huge amount. Um, you mean the top, the top gun is a myth. Are you, are you breaking yeah, the, top concept, gun, the glamour? The top, gun, the, is a, the top gun is definitely a, the top gun is definitely a myth. You have these periods, <laughs> you know, where you go through kind of intense flying training 
Um, but then when you become operational, there's a lot of just kind of hanging around on, on air force bases. Mm. Um, and I had other interests. I, like I was really interested in, in, in technology and in, in engineering and other things. So I decided not to join. And that was probably the biggest thinking back on it. I remember that decision being a very, very difficult decision to make. How old were um, you then? So I was 21 then. Okay. Just, just coming up to graduation. Yeah. Your parents must have been that thrilled with that decision, would they? Yeah, um, I think they were happy that I decided not to join. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, but my mum has always been very supportive and has always encouraged me to to take risks and to go after things. So I think, yeah, that she, I didn't really get, I didn't feel like at least I got any kind of, um, that, that I was being persuaded in, in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by them I felt like it was an independent decision now, I may have been influenced I probably was influenced but it definitely felt like an independent decision at the time but it's quite hard to kind of give up on a childhood dream and I remember there being this cutoff age which is you, you had to join the air force uh, as a pilot before the age of 24 you couldn't join afterwards so it felt like a very kind of irreversible decision um, but yeah in the end I decided not to join and looking back it was, it was kind of an obvious thing I would definitely would have made the same decision again um, but yeah then I ended up um, in, in trading. And, uh, the way I ended up in trading is I was, um, it's kind of a silly story, but I was, uh, I had a, fr- a friend of mine who, who, um, was a year ahead of me in university and he got a job, uh, as a, on the graduate program as a trader for JP Morgan. And he was telling me about how hard it was to get accepted into these investment banks. And, you know, you have to do all these internships and stuff. And so I just sort of made a friendly bet with him that I could get in. And uh, I applied to a bunch of banks and I got rejected from basically every, I got, remember I got, I got rejected from every single bank I applied for apart from one UBS. And then they offered me the job in trading and um, I accepted the job because I didn't really have anything else to do. And, uh, and then I started my career in trading and I was very fortunate because um, I was put on i didn't do a rotation i was kind of kind of put on a desk uh so in the final in the selection day there's a group of managing directors who evaluate you and they say okay i want this guy or this girl for this desk or for that desk and i was put onto this desk called algorithmic trading and um i was really upset about that because we were we were like this group of kind of nerds on the corner of a trading floor small team not really making much money and all my all my colleagues on my graduate on the graduate program were like in the middle of a trading floor, you know, shouting and screaming, and seeming it seems like they had, they were having a lot more fun. And and so I, I even complained to my boss, and I said, I don't actually want to be be on your desk. I want to be over over in there. And he said, Look, just like this is the place to be. This is the um, this is the emerging place. This, is, this place is you know this area is going to be big. And I didn't believe him, but um, I stayed there anyway. And uh, and he was right you know, algorithmic trading ended up, we ended up being this small team in the corner of a trading floor to basically pretty much taking over half the trading floor um, because all of trading became automated. I was only at UBS for about a year. Then I was offered a job at Credit Suisse and I was exposed to all different areas of business there. So I did a bit of sales. I, I was writing, designing new algorithms. I was writing code. And, and then I was offered the job very young at Deutsche Bank to run their algorithmic trading products and, and quant strategies team. 
on the back um, of a dare. Was, like you, you end drinking with a mate. On the back of a dare, yeah. On the back of a dare and you end up as a head of algorithmic trading with uh, Credit Suisse. Yeah, age 25. So I was, I was the youngest guy in the team. I was running the team and was the youngest person in the team. Let's just pause there for yeah. a second because I know we're going to go into the next part of the story, which is really, really fascinating. But I, I know that that we were talking just before this interview about the fact that, that you think it's a shame that people don't do what they want to do. But it doesn't mm. sound to me like at this point you knew what you wanted to do. Basically, you didn't have a plan. It's more that you just kept no. finding things that you didn't want to do. Would that be fair? Would that be a fair statement? You know, I I, I think looking back on it, that um, I put a lot of, a lot of trust uh, implicitly into people, mm. um, and sort of followed followed people, and I didn't kick up too much of a fuss. And it turns out that those people knew a lot more than I did about the world and about what, and, and actually more than about the world, about what I could do. You know, I, I'll give an example. I've, uh, when I was young, I taught myself how to program. My dad taught himself how to program and that's what inspired me to do it. And we, we had a, we had the foot, one of the first computers in the street and I just taught myself how to do it. What was your computer? Um, well, originally I was pro I was writing uh, code on a calculator, which is a Texas <laughs> instruments calculator, uh, which had a, a lightweight version of basic, but you could sort of write, write programs on. Yeah. Um, and then we had, we had a, like a windows PC, Gate, maybe a company called Gateway 2000. And then we had uh, an, like an, an, one of the original, not like the Mac classics, but one of the original Macs. And I didn't realize how valuable it was. I didn't realize how unique that was. When I, when I joined trading, that was the reason why I was put onto algorithmic trading. So it turns out I knew how to code. And they were like, okay, this, this guy knows how to code. And, and I only realized later, I was pretty much the first person on the trading floor who knew trading and also knew how to write code. I was just in this unique position that I didn't plan to be in and if I had my way, I would have been doing voice trading, you know, the traditional mm. way of trading. That's what looked good. Mm. So, yeah, I, you're right. I didn't know what I wanted to do, really. You know, you, you spot something that you think, oh, this looks like it's going to be enjoyable for me. And, and, and you go and do it and, and it, you know, and, and it usually is enjoyable. Um, but also, I think just putting, I just put a lot of trust I think I'm quite a quite a trusting person. I put a lot of trust into others who were a, who saw something in me or or the opportunity that I didn't see, mm. and they were right. They were mm. right because you actually saw something that you thought you wanted to do, which was be on the floor, and yeah. someone else said, "No, no, no, you'd be better over here," and you're just going, "Yeah, right." Give that a crack. Like, like a, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm trying to. Well, well, yes, sort of, of, sort of. I actually didn't believe them, but at the same time. I sort of didn't believe him fully, but at the same time, I sort of trusted him in a way that, okay, mm. this good person so passionate about me stay, staying here and about this area, but okay, mm. I'll, I'll stay here. And, and so you're in the, you're in the, the algorithmic trade that you were, you're in credit yep. squares in an amazing job, but that wasn't good enough for you. Something happened there. What, 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 what led to the next big shift for you? Um, it, it was just uh, back, back then, just probably still now a little bit, is just a feeling of being held back. Um, probably one of the motivations for me to, to, to start my own, own company. Um, but I didn't like being held back by the bureaucracy of a large organization. And I know it sounds funny because I then went to another large organization, Deutsche Bank, but it felt like even if you were, you know, a kind of outperformer, uh, a star performer, whatever you want to call it, that there was still a limit to, to how, how fast you could progress through the company. And, I was very, very time sensitive, like I'm very impatient, um, mm. still am quite impatient in a sense that, you know, 
I don't, I don't want to be held back. Like I want to do more and, you know, progress more. For, I don't know why, but some reason, something about it, um, the job, it just didn't appeal to me. And at, at the same time, a lot of people around me, they were aspiring for, for those jobs. So it was in a, I was in a tricky situation because um, I was earning a lot of money, like an insane amount of money, actually. Why, why, would, you, why would you give that up? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. but I think what, what I realized is I, you know, I never, I, I didn't set out to to be in this position and to earn this money, had just decided not to join the Air Force. And a friend of mine said, oh, trading floors are exciting. You should go and try out for, for a job or, or, you know, basically bet me that I couldn't get a job. And, um, and now here I am several years later doing this thing. And, and I, I, it's what I, I remember thinking this, this wasn't ever, ever a conscious choice really originally. So if it wasn't a conscious choice originally, maybe like I can now, now make one, you know, I can almost, I, I, I just, I can now write off the amount of money that I'm making because it wasn't, a, it wasn't a planned. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, it just felt like I could just start again and make the choice again. I had not always had nothing to lose. So in terms of where that led to, you know, founding this incredible business, Optimal Agriculture, mm. you know, we, we're talking about a business that's focused on growing safer, healthier food, you know, by basically deploying greenhouses outside of urban cities or urban city centers all around the world. That that that's a massive change. And I, I think for me, like like you said, if you if you read through the C V, it, it's very much about like, oh, that makes sense, as you said, almost to to logically move to that next place, to that next level. Was there was there something that happened, or was there an event that occurred there for you where you decided this is a fantastic thing to look at? I uh, I'm interested in this. Or I've always had a passion for something like this. I'm 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 very keen to sort of uh, have our listeners know a little bit more about what allowed you to sort of move from the quantitative trading side to a uh, more sustainable way of uh, of how we farm and consume food. It's it's incredible. Well, it wasn't a light bulb moment, if that's what the listeners <laughs> want to hear. You know, I didn't step into the shower one day and come out with this idea. Um, <laughs> and as everyone knows, the idea is nothing. Almost, it's kind of the it's the, it's it's actually acting on the idea, which is everything really. But um, yeah, it, it was it wasn't as smooth as how you explain it. Um, I. I left Deutsche Bank, I left banking and I ended up just taking some time out thinking about what the next thing was, was I wanted to do. And I rushed into startup type entrepreneurship, uh, with really no, um, experience in it whatsoever. Just a complete newbie, but thinking that I sort of must know something cause I can write code and I can program and stuff like this. And I built this, you know, amazing team within a bank. Therefore, I can do X, Y, and Z. And I worked on this startup idea. It was called Word of House. And it was about connecting homeowners with tradespeople, ultimately like electricians, plumbers, and stuff like this. Yeah. And it I worked on it for like for almost two years um, with various people, and it ended up going nowhere. Um and that was a pretty depressing time, quite frankly. Mm. Um, and got a lot more depressing towards the end. Um, and a lot of like feeling like being a failure and all this kind of stuff. And that was bad. Then I, when I joined this kind of startup incubator, which was in London, it, it, the idea of this incubator was that you'd sort of join with a bunch of other 
people mm. who wanted to kind of start companies. I had some ideas about that and they were, you kind of meet up with a kind of co-founder and, and you would build something. I met up with someone um, and again, we worked on another idea, which was a total failure. So now I'm like, now I've got a couple of failures under my belt and mm. And, and how, and old, then, how uh, old are you at this point? 30. So yeah, it also just turned 30. So it's like, okay, mm. I've just turned 30. And what am I doing with my life? Basically mm. I've, I've, you know, I've, I've got these failures. Um, and then, then I realized, then I, at that point, I, I, that's when I made like a real conscious decision. Like I, I realized that I was, I was basically doing the wrong thing. It took the failures to realize that I was doing the wrong thing, which is I, was, I, I realized what I was good at is getting to the edge of some technical field you know, really to the cutting edge of some technical field. I was good at that. I was naturally curious about that. And then figuring out problems that could be solved with that, with that technology. And what I was doing, the startup ideas I was working on were kind of, you know, internet based ideas, which were not really the application of real cutting edge technology. And, and that was the kind of realization for me. It was like, okay, my passion and my interest is in like real like hard cutting edge technology and the problems that can be solved or, you know, that can now be solved through the application of that technology. And so I actually thought, my, my thought then was I'm, I'm actually going to go and do, I'm going to go back to university. It still sounds a bit, bit, bit mad, but like, but I'm going to go and do the computer science degree, but I wish I'd, I'd done previously as an undergraduate. So I, I applied, got accepted on the master's program at Oxford University in computer science. And I really wanted to do research within machine learning, which was, you know, it wasn't uh, as well known as it is now. We, we, we've been using some machine learning techniques at Deutsche Bank, and I wanted to get to the edge of that field. So I did that master's. I did research within the machine learning lab there within an area called reinforcement learning. Mm. I progressed in that field. I was offered a PhD place at Princeton University uh, with like full scholarship and everything, which was, for me was, I, I, I can't stress like how low I got before I got accepted onto that Oxford program. Like I hit, I wouldn't say like rock bottom because that, you know, there are people mm. who are in a lot worse situation than me, but mentally it felt low. And, and like, was, the, I, was the attraction to go back into finance pretty strong? No, not at that point. Prior to that point, during these failures, start a couple of startup mm. failures, yeah, I was always thinking like, let's go back into finance. It's always there. Yeah. And I think around that second failure point, I, I, I thought, okay, this is a point I'm just going to cut that out. It doesn't, that option is not going to exist anymore. Yeah. And, and here is how I'm going to move forwards. I'd split um, up with a long-term girlfriend. Everything was falling apart. Everything was falling apart. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, it felt like everything bad was just happening at once um, or just building up, you know? Um, and, and then I started to get rejections. I applied to, to, uh, to one university. I got rejected. And then I got the acceptance from Oxford and, and a, that was the turning point, I think. Mm because you'd you'd forgot I'd forgotten what success felt like mm. and so to get accepted again onto that program you know mm. you feel like okay wow I just had these failures right mm. these, these mm. startup failures mm. um that come off the back of a period of, of you know very fast kind of career progression and you know doing big things in banking and then then to have these failures so that was bad that was I can't stress like how like much of a <laughs> dark time that was mm. um and it, i think it's important for people to know that because it's these things are not uh really really they're not easy and when you're when you are changing direction like that you you have to you are you are a beginner mm. you mm. know and you're going to make all the beginner's mistakes and mm. and presumably in the last thing you just did you you weren't a beginner at the end of that you were probably at some intermediate level maybe even expert level and now you're going to suck at something new 
you're going to fail at it, right? Mm. So, but you're going to fail at it having come off being an expert and, and being a bit older, um, mm. which which is hard to take sometimes. Mm. And that, and that that period of turning around isn't just like a couple of weeks or a couple of months. You're talking about almost a six year period of two startups failing and then going into a master's program. That that that's yep. years and years of of transition and of arguably you know, the mental resilience and the and the loneliness you know because i don't think it's just um the fact that you you're battling with i'm failure or i'm not as smart as i think i am or all these sorts of negative thoughts come into to play when you got the acceptance from the oxford that that letter, letter from oxford to start retraining i think that that gave you some hope for sure but then you're in a room as a mature age student and again at the bottom of nothing so how did you how did you sort of pick your pick yourself up your bootstraps and just get is it just about having a crack and getting into it or was there things that you did or did you use routine what was that what were the things that sort of cracked you out of that mindset so you're right when i joined that program um there were there were a lot of people on that on in that masters who had just come straight off the undergraduate degree at oxford so They'd done the they'd done the three year bachelor's computer science degree, and they were in in their 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 next year to convert to a master's. And most people on that undergraduate degree went to do a master's. And there I was. So these you had these people who'd just gone through three years of undergraduate computer science at Oxford, and me, who was way behind basically, um, like a very fundamental very fundamentally like behind. Um, but I just remember thinking, no, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to get the top and I'm, mm. I'm going to, I'm aiming for like the top grade, like number one, not to, not like a distinction, like actually the number one student. I, I remember, I, remember <laughs> I, I really had something to prove to myself. Mm. Um, and I just thought, I'm just going to work harder. I'm going to study smarter. Also enjoy, also enjoy myself. Like enjoy, enjoy the being in that student life again. Um, and doing all those activities and everything else. I'm definitely being part of a part of the thing, but but I'd learned a lot about how to study and how to study smart and how to work smart. And I just thought, yeah, I'm just I'm just gonna I've got to prove this to myself. I've got to get I've got to get this kind of uh, this number one spot. Like spoiler alert, I didn't get the number one in the class. But <laughs> oh, I, I, fail. What do you get? <laughs> I was I was I was in the top. I was definitely in the top few people in terms mm. of grades. Yeah, mm. um, and. And then I was off this PhD place. So, so yeah, but a lot of that was down to, I think one, just deciding this is what I'm going to do and then sticking with it basically um, mm. and, and doing it in a smart way. So what next? Like where, where you're sort of at this, this crossroads or turning point to say, do I keep going the academia route or do mm. I, uh, I go somewhere else? Yeah. I, there, there were, there were two big things, two big influences there. One is um, probably the most important one, which is I I met my future wife at whilst I was at Oxford. Mm-hmm. Um, although we were we were early on in like very early on in a relationship at that point uh, when I when I was off the PhD place. Um, and secondly, uh, I uh, as part of this um, getting this PhD place, you got that they paid for you to to go and visit Princeton. Mm-hmm. And to hang out in the computer science department for a day and meet all the other people who were also about to start a PhD there, and I really felt quite strongly that I had different motivations to everyone else in that room, and it became very clear to me then in that day that 
I should not do this PhD. Um, the, the reasons for me wanting to do it were very different. I, I wasn't in love with, with, with the idea of doing science as the other people in this room were. And I just didn't feel like I would be able to do good science, as good a science as, as they were, just because the passion for it wasn't there. That's what, that's what led me to give up the PhD place. But I, I, I almost certainly was influenced by the fact that I've met this incredible woman as well in, in, in Oxford. Uh, mm. And that would have, I would have had to have given that up. So yeah, that was, so that was the end of Princeton. Bye-bye Princeton. Uh, <laughs> and, and there I was again, trying to figure out what to do. Uh, but, but, but at that point I had a plan. Like I, I, I deliberately gone to university to get to the edge, to get to the edge of a field of science, which I'd chosen, like I wanted to get to the edge of machine learning. And the thought I had was if I can get to the edge of some field, uh, that has some, some big utility, like some real world utility, like it felt like machine learning had, then I'd be able to see real world problems that could be solved using that technology. Um, and I could go and work for a company or I could go and build a, build a company around, around that problem. And I just got to the edge. I felt like I got to the edge. I'd gotten close enough to the edge of machine learning at that point after the masters that I that could already then actually do that, do that mm. second step. I didn't have to go and do the PhD. So you, you've automated the trading floor, proving that you can create an algorithm that makes better trading decisions than the traders on the trading floor. And now you're in agriculture proving that your algorithms might be better farmers than the farmers that have been doing this for generations is is this is that kind of the same thing um well yeah actually looking back on it i guess you could say it is right um we can now grow tomatoes our algorithms can grow tomatoes in a greenhouse at a higher yield and resource efficiency than the best growers um so I guess yeah, we've all we sort of automated uh, the green thing, green fingers, or gone gone beyond what the best uh, human growers can achieve in terms of um, you know cost of production, resource efficiency, and everything. Um, but that definitely wasn't how I started. Uh, I didn't set out to automate this the, the job of a grower. Um, I set out to reduce the energy consumption within within greenhouses using these techniques I'd learned. Um, I'd sort of was inspired by, um, by a project that Google DeepMind um, had, had worked on. So DeepMind is Google's AI division based in London. Um, they do a lot of work in machine learning and reinforcement learning. And the lab at Oxford had, were basically very close collaborators with DeepMind. And they, they worked on a project to reduce the energy consumption within a Google data center. They managed to reduce, reduce the energy consumption by 40%. This was already on, on top of what already pretty smart Google engineers have managed to achieve. Mm. And that was the inspiration for the company Optimal, which I started. And originally it was about reducing the energy consumption in data centers, not, not some huge, uh, you know, super creative idea. It was like, here's a data center and here's a greenhouse and the greenhouse is a big glass box and it's got all these actuators and stuff and energy is probably a big deal. And it turns out it is a big deal. Like I spent a lot of time in the Netherlands uh, on site at these greenhouses, trying to understand how they worked and everything. And the original plan was to build basically a better climate control system for greenhouses, kind of like a nest for greenhouses or something um, that would control temperature, humidity, and CO2 and, and do that in a more accurate, energy-efficient way. And only when I was in the industry and like at these greenhouses did I realize that there was this much bigger problem, which is that 
as, as, as great as greenhouses are, they, they just can't be scaled quickly enough in places mm. like the US and so on because of the shortage of these growers. Like at the heart of every greenhouse operation is a grower who actually like manually grows the crop. Mm. Um, and so I was sucked into, I was sucked into, into that, I, into that idea, but definitely didn't set out to, to solve. I didn't even know, I didn't, I didn't even know that problem existed before mm. I, I stepped, mm. I stepped foot into a greenhouse. Like I think just for, you know, for the purposes of our listeners and, and those that haven't, you know, gone beyond understanding really the, the whole concept behind, you know, growing safer, healthier food through greenhouses, like the, the concept that you've created, like. I'm I'm really interested in understanding how this this uh, this way of uh, of sort of developing these greenhouses outside of urban centres. How, how will this you know how will this change how we we consume food? Like you know like how um, why why is this the best way um, for us as a society uh, to sort of support uh, a very you know a, a very interesting model that you've created here through the greenhouses. Well, firstly, um, we, we have to move towards a future where we are growing fruits and vegetables indoors. I mean, in, in Europe, we've already moved a long way towards that. So yeah, around a third of the tomatoes that are consumed in Europe are already being grown in a greenhouse. Fundamentally, field farming is, is completely supply constrained. Like we can't get more out of fields. We're already using all the free land available in the world for farming. Um, if you want to increase the supply of farming, you have to start chopping down more, more, more forests, essentially. And on top of that, we've got extreme weather events, um, you know, which are causing extreme climates and droughts, which are actually reducing the, are reducing the output from fields. So we're at this point where we just can't get more out of fields without some serious problems. Uh, and it's probably like supply is going to reduce. At the same time, you know, so that's like the supply. I and mean, on the demand side, we've got a growing population, as everyone knows. We want to eat more healthily. We want to eat more fruits and vegetables. And, you know, as wealth levels increase, those, again, there's a shift more towards kind of healthier diets and, and, and fresh fruits and vegetables. So you've already got a huge, we've already got a huge problem. And that's manifesting itself in, in places like the US, for example, where fruits and vegetables are very expensive tomatoes often cost twice as much in the US as they do in Europe, like twice as much for the same product, which is kind mm. of insane. Um, but, you know, food is, is peppers, bell peppers, for example, are being grown in greenhouses in the Netherlands and flown to the US to be sold, which, I mean, the Netherlands, I don't know <laughs> how well you know the climate of the Netherlands, but it's very rainy, mm. uh, very cloudy and not amazing for growing crops. So that's kind of, kind of also crazy. Um, so, and, and, and supermarkets are often out of stock of basic products like tomatoes in the U S uh, mm. and it's not just for us. I'm, I'm talking in a lot of countries outside of, outside of Europe where we've, Europe's gone the furthest to, um, adopt, uh, indoor farming. So if you, if we don't grow more indoors, all that's going to happen is, uh, the same or even less food is going to be supplied. Prices will just go up and up. And less and less people will be able to afford it and will be able to have fruits and vegetables. And, and you know, that's the situation we're, we're in. Like, so the only solution to this problem, if you want to consume these fruits and vegetables, is to grow them indoors. 
See, those two, those four years in the startup industry have really taught you how to pitch really well. I, I'm excited. I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm getting on a plane and coming over. I think what you're doing is, is fantastic. That's, that's, in, that's, in, that's insane. Mm-hmm. When you think about the exciting things that you're doing right now and you look back at where you, when you were sitting in earning heaps of money in, the, in you know, one of the financial institutions, there are there are many listeners that will be listening to this podcast that know what that feeling is where I'm being paid too much to leave. That I, I don't really think that what I'm doing is the right thing. But if I leave and I give up that payment, I, I could lose my house, I could lose all these sorts of things that intrinsically or extrinsically mean something to me. What would you say to those people? I would say, yep. You could lose your house. You could lose those things. Mm. Um, but there, in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, you have one life and you don't want to live a life full of regret. That's worth way more than those other things. So mm. yeah, you will go through pain mm. for sure. You will lose things. You just, it's a tragedy if you, if you, if you live a life full of regret, it's a tragedy. Like you know, really, I think, there's, there really is, it really is only so much you can lose, you know, being, being born in the UK. Um, like I feel incredibly fortunate to have had, to, 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 to have had the opportunities that, that being somewhere like the UK has, has allowed me to have. Mm. Um, and, and so I, I don't feel, um, honestly, I don't feel particularly courageous to have done what I've done. I think there are people in, in countries around the world where, they really don't have any kind of safety net whatsoever. Um, and for them to do something like, like what I've done is, is way more courageous. Um, but, but, but yeah, I, I, I also do understand that I, I, I the, the moves that I have made, um, a lot of people wouldn't make them. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I have to be like kind of really clear here because I think, um, even if there's only one person listening to this show, like I have a lot of responsibility to, to say what, what I really feel on this. And that's that, yes, you are going to experience pain and loss if you, mm. if you leave some career that you're doing well in. Um, like it's inevitable. Um, but personally, the pain of, of like projecting forwards in my life and like thinking, you know, the regret that I would feel from staying the course in that, in that first career, like that was, that was, that was overwhelming, like a much much larger force than any kind of pain I could have, I could have felt by, by changing careers. So, and and I say, I'm I'm sitting here, sit here today doing what I'm doing now, you know, the company I'm working on it, it may well fail at some point in the future. Um, Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's still a risky endeavor, but I've got no regrets at all about, moving this direction in, in, in this direction mm. and i would encourage anyone to 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 do the same thing mm. but to but to realize that yeah like it is going to be painful it is going to hurt mm. it's going to hurt a lot you know mm. and maybe if you're lucky it won't hurt as much as, as others but it, it, mm. it's going to hurt in, in, in to some degree mm. and, and so you're, you're saying make a decision based on not based on the fear of loss but on the the chance of opportunity and potential um does that make you an optimist i'm definitely an optimist about 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 the about the future yeah like i i fund i think i 
in, in terms of the future, yes, I, I'm, I'm definitely an optimist. Like I believe that um, we can create the future. We, we can basically create the future. Um, we can decide, it's up to people like you and I to decide what future we want and then to go and create that future. The future just doesn't, doesn't just create itself. Um, and so we have a lot of agency over the future that we're going to live in. Um, so yeah, from that perspective, I'm, and, and I believe that future we can create and we can create, it can, can be better than, than the present we're in today, which is better than, 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 than in many ways than, than the past. So from that perspective, yeah, I'm, I'm an optimist. So what's the next steps for you? You're, you, you're revolutionizing the, uh, the, the agriculture industry. And, and I can see your passion for that, not just in terms of the, the coolness of the science, you know, being able to grow bigger, better, faster tomatoes with half their energy. I know that, I know that hitting those winning in that respect gives you a lot of energy. I can see that, but, but where is it going? Is it, is it, is, is, you know, uh, 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 are animals next? You know, uh, we, what's what's the, is it? You know, you're going to create the the organic cow. You know, the, the vegan cow or something like. What's what's the what's the what's the next big thing on you on? What's the what's the optimistic version of the future in your mind look for you at the moment? I think you're asking that to, to the wrong person. Like I've never <laughs> been someone who who really plans that far ahead. M- maybe this is maybe this helps me a lot because I don't get as much anxiety about, about some kind of long-term plan that may or may not materialize, but I'm on this path now. Mm. Um, I like this path and I'm going to run down this path. And, you know, the way I see it, a lot of greenhouses need to be built around the world. A lot, you know, tens of thousands of hectares of new greenhouses in all Mm. countries around the world. And that's, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm going for. Mm. Um, and until this is, you know, successful or i die trying basically <laughs> and mm. Mm. and then i'll figure out the next thing once that happens so <laughs> i think that's fascinating so you're basically saying follow your immediate curiosity follow the opportunity that sits right in front of you and 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 follow that to its to its to its to its end logical end conclusion you i think we all know um when we're doing something that that's right for us mm you know it instinctively, you can feel it in your gut. Mm. Um, you don't need to analyze it. Mm. Um, I've always, um, I've, 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 I've used to have a, a big tendency to kind of overanalyze anything. Um, reality is you can just feel it if it's right and you can feel it if it's wrong. Mm. And that's not to say that the path I'm on is easy. Like it's a, it's mm. a, it's a total roller coaster. And oh, that's the other thing I should mention about entrepreneurship is, um, it's really hard. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't advise it to, to, to everyone. That's for sure. Um, mm. especially kind of starting a company and running a company, a lot of the stress that goes with that. Mm. Mm. Um, it's very, very hard sometimes, but you, but just the whole package, the, the path I'm on feels, feels right for me. And I don't need any more than that really in my mm. gut it feels right therefore i'm i'm continuing mm. I, I, I that's all the way that's that's not to say that you know but there are definitely a, a, a large period of my time in banking uh and in, in, in algorithmic trading also felt right mm. Mm. so i wasn't i'm not to say it was the wrong career path it just that it, it had run its course at some point and i've got, I've got a curious question for you um in australia like we have a lot of land here 
and we're not doing yep. anything with it. Like, like not even trees are growing on it. Like there is a, there is a lot of vacant land here in Australia. Is, is what you're doing the type of thing that you could just plant in, you know, a couple of K out of Alice Springs in the heart of Australia and it would work? Does it work like that? Can I tell you a quick, um, something interesting about Australia and greenhouses? Site selection is very important. So, you know, the, um, the we're talking about glass, like huge glass buildings for size mm. of several, you know, several football fields in size, massive glass buildings. Um, but you, you get a lot of influence from it, from external weather conditions. So, so choosing the climate, choosing the climate is right. But um, one of my uh, colleagues, one of the advisors actually to, to Optimal, he built a greenhouse in Australia, um, which is an in- incredible greenhouse because it, it basically, they basically grow tomatoes in the desert. Mm. Um, and you should look this greenhouse up. It's called Sundrop Farms. And it's in- incredible. It, it's, it's based on what's called the saltwater greenhouse concept, which was invented by a guy called, I think Charlie Patton is his name, a British um, uh, sort of innovator um, who came up with this concept. I've, I met Charlie in London and it was one of the commercial versions was built by one of one of our advisors uh, in Australia. And this, they're growing tomatoes in the desert using seawater. And what they do is they have a bunch <laughs> of mirrors in the desert. It's kind of crazy. You have a bunch that of sounds mirrors absurd. Hang on, you're growing yeah. tomatoes in the desert using seawater. Yeah, the way they do it is they have a huge, um, like a mirror array in in uh, on the ground, which focuses the sunlight onto a tower. Um, they pump seawater up into the tower, and and the sunlight kind of turns the seawater into steam. And then they condense. So, so that steam they generate, then they power uh, sort of a, a turbine. They, they create electricity from this from that steam. Uh, that electricity powers the whole greenhouse. They condense the steam back into water. Now it has a lower salt content. They pump the water up a sort of sort of membrane on the side of a greenhouse. And on the opposite side of a greenhouse, they have these fans which are powered by the electricity from the steam. And the fans suck that water through the greenhouse. They get this evaporative cooling effect, which cools the greenhouse down. And then they condense the water a second time. And now the water has a low enough salt co- uh, content that it can be used to irrigate the crops. And they irrigate the crops and then they grow, they grow the crop in a nice, cool environment with lots of sunlight. And then they, they, sell, they, 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 they have tomatoes. That's incredible. That's yeah, it's amazing, right? So, so, so you know, th- does that, though, answer the question that, yes, we could? You know, I think of countries like Saudi Arabia. I think of yeah. uh, even parts of, of, of Africa and, and, and Australia and the US. Like, there's many places where the land is deemed to be non-agricultural. Like, you couldn't grow anything, which is why they right. go into forests because forests already grow in that land, right? So, so will other things. So are you saying that we could actually start utilising that land that is not good for any agricultural growth and turn it into agricultural land? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's just a question of cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as, 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 as we find new ways to power these greenhouses, it will lower the cost of production and it will, it will, make, it will make more climates accessible to, to, to greenhouses. Um, yeah, our, our vision is to be able to, is, is, moving towards like a, is moving towards a fully autonomous greenhouse where you know the, all the growing decisions, the way the crop is grown, is done by an AI algorithm, 
and all the crop handling tasks within the greenhouse are done by robots. Um, and then you have different greenhouse designs for different climates. So um, if you have some kind of arid climate, like you might find in, in Utah, for example, then you have a certain type of greenhouse design. If you have a temperate climate, like you find in the Netherlands or in, in parts of the east of the US, um, or even parts of North India, uh, you have a different type of greenhouse design. Um, but that these greenhouses will become more uh, sort of more widespread, will supply more and more of our food, and, and it will be completely automated. Uh, and, and and we have to we have to move towards that. I mean, field farming is constrained. Indoor farming is the way to supply fruits and vegetables, and, and more and more of it will be supplied through greenhouses in the future. Um, and it's the lowest cost out of out of all the indoor farming methods out there. Glass greenhouses is the lowest cost production method. We just need to automate these facilities and deploy them in more places. Wow, I'm now going to invest in greenhouses and supply chains. That's what I, that's what I'm here. Right? <laughs> you you might have a couple of equity partners available in Australia for you here, David, which is uh, which is good. Um, you mentioned Utah uh, in terms of sort of like US sort of drive for your business. I know. For you, obviously, there's been you know a lot of success that you've enjoyed in the in in Europe, but you're now pushing much more into the US uh, for the business. What 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 was your sort of reasoning or motivation about sort of taking what you're doing here to the US next uh, beyond Europe? So yeah, really, the Netherlands is the heart of the greenhouse industry, and it's just a kind of for historical reasons that they've they've developed larger and larger and more sophisticated greenhouses over time. Um, and now from within the Netherlands, a lot of fruits and vegetables are grown and supplied to countries across the whole of Europe. Mm. So the, um, the Dutch really are the leaders in, in greenhouse horticulture. Um, the challenge is, is how you take these, these Dutch greenhouses and deploy them in other countries around the world where they're needed and where, where they don't have skilled operators. Um, this grower profession I was talking about before, that's, that's, that, that is a profession in the Netherlands, but that career path isn't taken by anyone in, in, in any other country. Um, so that's, that's really what we need to do. Um, and the US is kind of an obvious uh, starting point for us um, compared to Europe, which has about 10,000 hectares of greenhouses. The US only has 500 hectares. Uh, so you know, food prices are twice as expensive there. The supply is intermittent. Quality is not as good. The shelf life is not as good. Food's transported further. There's all of these things. Um, coupled with the fact that the US is just um, kind of very easy place to, to do business and to, to raise capital and so on. It just, that just felt, felt like the natural first place for us to start um, and to deploy greenhouses, but, but autonomously controlled greenhouses rather than greenhouses that rely on, on, on growers. Um, but you know that's that's just a starting point for us. Um, there are many other places around the world where they lack the the operating expertise to operate a greenhouse, but where those greenhouses would really help to improve uh, food supply. So the Middle East, for example, you mentioned before, China is a, um, a huge opportunity for greenhouses. Um, other parts, other parts of Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. um, Australia as well. Mm. I, I love the fact that we're redefining what the term the greenhouse effect actually means. This, this could be good. I can, <laughs> I can see something there. I can see something there. Right? Yeah, well, actually, well, we, we, use, we use elevated levels of CO2 within the greenhouse. So we actually kind of consume CO2. 
<laughs> so um, it really is wow. okay. All right, yeah. of course, of course it does. Yeah. Like in the greenhouse, we have in, in the Netherlands, we run, we, we take CO2 from a, uh, like waste CO2 from a refinery, which would ordinarily be pumped out into the atmosphere. And we use that to create elevated levels of CO2 within the greenhouse, much higher than atmospheric levels. And that allows you to produce more food per square foot. So you get, you get to, you get a high yield, you get a higher revenue, higher profit from that, from that greenhouse. We just need to create these massive sheds for cows as well, and then use that flatulence to then, I, I can see this, <laughs> I, can, I can see something happening here. I can see it making sense. I can see it don't, making sense. Don't get him started. Unfortunately, David, we we uh, will will go off on the wrong tangent with this uh, with this podcast today. I think from from both my side and Phil's side, it, it's uh, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast, and uh, we really really do want to know more about uh, what's happening uh, with Optimal and the success that it's uh, it's bringing not only for uh, for Europe but now, as you mentioned, a lot more cities and. Uh, and locations around uh, around the world. So uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Turnaround Mindset Podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please head over to iTunes, Google, or Spotify, hit subscribe, and share the podcast with someone you think would benefit from it. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating. To download this episode and access other relevant content, please visit our website, www.theturnaroundmindset.com. Join us next week for another Turnaround Mindset episode. And remember, the only way it gets better for you is when you get better.